Game Cool Books, Episode 21, Entry Strictly Forbidden. Besides the dramatic scene which culminates in the setting free of the severed demons from their cages, with all sorts of resonances backwards and forwards in the story that that sets off, Chapter 15 is remarkable for the variations on the theme of growing up which runs through it and through the series as a whole. The connection between demons and growing up, which has been hinted at before, is drawn and redrawn in this chapter. It's presented in various lights and perspectives, and it makes it clearer than ever what is at stake in Mrs. Coulter's experiments, Lord Asriel's research, and in Pullman's own story, the fulfillment of human potential, its overreach or its curtailment, the locus of meaning in the physical world, and projects whose consequences could be catastrophic, or its spectral evanescence in isolation. As in the framing of the previous chapter, this one is bookended by Mrs. Coulter. Present at the outset by implication, by the end of it she arrives in person. It wasn't Lyra's way to brood. She was a sanguine and practical child, and besides, she wasn't imaginative. No one with much imagination would have thought seriously that it was possible to come all this way and rescue her friend Roger, or, having thought it, an imaginative child would immediately have come up with several ways in which it was impossible. Being a practiced liar doesn't mean you have a powerful imagination. Many good liars have no imagination at all. It's that which gives their lies such wide-eyed conviction. So now that she was in the hands of the Oblation Board, Lyra didn't fret herself into terror about what had happened to the Egyptians. So as much as she remorsed over her failure to check the alethiometer before the ambush, uncharacteristically feeling sorry for herself, here Lyra bounces back. Rather than dwelling on the ways things could go wrong, the sort of imagination, in fact, which might have led her to check the alethiometer sooner, she looks forward confidently to how well things might still turn out like her fairy tale imagining back at Mrs. Coulter's, though with different actors. In the course of describing the restoration of Lyra's mental equilibrium, the narrator also gives us the sort of gnomic epigram which was so prominent at the end of chapter two. There, it was about the young and the old, carefree scorn and wistful anxiety. Here, it's about imagination and liars. Along with this bit of old-fashioned generalizing, frequently to be found in the novels Pullman most admires by the likes of George Eliot, we also see a reference to the still older-fashioned theory of humors embedded in the adjective sanguine. There's a great deal beneath the surface here. As ever, Lyra's personality drives the narration, but the words used to characterize her have a history of their own. In this case, Sanguine, an ancient system which tied individual temperaments to the elements of hot and cold, wet and dry, whose combinations made up the perceptible world. This is how it's described in Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. The body is domicilium anime, her house, abode and stay, and as a torch gives a better light, a sweeter smell, according to the matter it is made of, so doth our soul perform all her actions, better or worse, as her organs are disposed, or as wine savors of the cask wherein it is kept, the soul receives a tincture from the body through which it works, 
We see this in old men, children, Europeans, Asians, hot and cold climes, sanguine or merry, melancholy, sad, phlegmatic, dull, by reason of abundance of those humors, and they cannot resist such passions which are inflicted by them. Just note in passing there, there's a idea a little above that. He has a, a phrase uh, as a lute out of tune. Um, actually, that makes me think about the word fret that appeared in that description as, as well. Lyra didn't fret herself. I think there might be a musical pun uh, hidden in that word's history, though I haven't looked it up to be sure. Slightly closer to the surface, of course, sanguine comes from a Latin word meaning blood, and this element of it gets picked up right away uh, as the fearful pallor that contrasts with the expressive color as blood flows back in to Roger's face. And Lyra is foresighted this time. She does manage to see Roger before he sees her. And in another little literary nod to give herself a reason for stopping near him, she drops a handkerchief. It's a trope that's used frequently in old stories, one significant example being in Shakespeare's Othello. Roger's status as kitchen boy, too, might remind us of a character like Sir Gareth, the kitchen knight. And that's a point that's made by one of the academics interviewed in the documentary movie Beyond the Golden Compass. Of course, as she goes on to point out, it's Lyra who's about to rescue him. And there was Roger. He was sitting with five other boys at a table just inside the door. The line for the hatch went right past them, and she was able to pretend to drop a handkerchief and crouch to pick it up, bending low next to his chair so that Pantaliman could speak to Roger's demon, Salcilia. She was a chaffinch, and she fluttered so wildly that Pantaliman had to be a cat and leap at her, pinning her down to whisper. Such brisk fights or scuffles between children's demons were common, luckily, and no one took much notice, but Roger went pale at once. Lyra had never seen anyone so white. He looked up at the blank, haughty stare she gave him, and the color flooded back into his cheeks as he brimmed over with hope, excitement, and joy. And only Pantaliman, shaking Salcilia firmly, was able to keep Roger from shouting out and leaping up to greet his best friend, his comrade-in-arms, his Lyra. But he saw how she looked away disdainfully, and he followed her example faithfully, as he'd done in a hundred Oxford battles and campaigns. Um, Salcilia's name uh, connotes salt, uh, and uh, cilia, or, or eyelashes, I think, in the root meaning. But also, by its sound, it connotes softness and sibilance. And her form as a chaffinch and the scuffles that ensue set us up for the comparisons against Sister Betty's demon and Annie's demon that happen elsewhere in the chapter. The repeated emphasis on Roger's whiteness here, in hindsight of his ghostly role later, provi uh, uh, proves prophetic. But it passes, just as the blood rushes back into his face. It tinges it the colors of hope and joy. As the narrator temporarily offers us a glimpse into the way Roger sees Lyra, we're reminded how he'd followed her example in Oxford. 
At the time, we were told, that also seemed serious to them. It's a fond memory compared to the deadly danger they're in now. But now, they'll also be using some of what they've learned there, including just that trust. Pullman's sententious mode peeks through again as he tells us about the social dynamics that persist even in the artificial environment of Bolvanger, or perhaps exacerbated by it. You can't keep a large group of children in one place for long without giving them plenty to do, and in some ways Bolvanger was run like a school, with timetabled activities such as gymnastics and art. Boys and girls were kept separate except for breaks in mealtimes, so it wasn't until mid-morning, after an hour and a half of sewing directed by one of the nurses, that Lyra had the chance to talk to Roger. But it had to look natural. That was the difficulty. All the children there were more or less at the same age, and it was the age when most boys talked to boys and girls to girls, each making a conspicuous point of ignoring the opposite sex. The scare quotes around art drip from Pullman's voice as he reads this aloud. The author's experience as a teacher in schools and at a teacher's college, and his experience since becoming a writer full-time of still remaining an interested observer and outspoken commentator on the state of schools and libraries are all at least as relevant here as his uh, little autobiographical details that are sprinkled elsewhere such as how he learned to sweep from a sailor, or used to listen to the hum of electricity as a child, or smelled the smell of glamour. Now, another favorite passage of mine in this book, it's hilarious taken out of context, though daring and risky it might actually be there. Um, it was difficult to talk while your demon's attention was somewhere else, so Lyra pretended to look glum and rebellious as she sipped her milk with the other girl. Uh, so she's distracted then by hearing the name of Tony Macarios. Uh, from what the blonde girl is saying, it seems that kids are taken away when their demons stop changing. We just learned here how difficult it is to concentrate when your demon is talking. And in, in Tony's case, it sounds like they thought he was older than he looked, like Lyra is, um, but that they were mistaken. His demon did change, just not very often, because Tony never thought much about it. That's what she said. His demon never changed very often because Tony himself never thought much about anything. I seen her change. She was called Ratter. Why are they so interested in demons, said Lyra. No one knows, said the blonde girl. So, uh, that link between Ratter's infrequent changes, the way adults' demons don't change, how kids at this age normally boys talk to boys and girls to girls, but in some cases there's exceptions, uh, how demons can talk to one another while their people are listening to another conversation or trying to. All this is, to say the least, a little tricky to parse out. But I think that there must be some differences here between the way that Tony's demon doesn't change much and the way that adults' demons don't change at all. Um, 
And the ambiguity there, I think, is part of what the experiments at Bolvanger are designed to try to clear up, which suggests, I think, that that ambiguity is actually essential. So, whereas children's demons might not change much if their minds aren't terribly active, adults' demons lose the ability to change even as their minds become more capable of sustained and serious thought. Something might be lost in this transition as well. The free play of imagination, uh, sensitivity to impressions, unreflecting innocence. But the link between the person and their demon is maintained, even strengthened, in the natural process of gaining self-consciousness and physical maturity, which is not the case, of course, in what happens to Tony and the other children at Bolvanger. The conversation almost gets sidetracked by other kids' ideas they toss out about this all-important topic, that they kill your demon and see if you die, or that the make holes in your head, I bet. Um, but the blonde girl overrides them all with her insistence on telling what happened. I know what they do. How, said someone. Because I was with them when they came for him. We was in the linen room, she said. She was blushing hotly. If she was expecting jeers and teasing, they didn't come. All the children were subdued, and no one even smiled. So, instinctively it seems, the children, like Lyra, if not so thoroughgoing, conceal how interested they are, and thus conceal the full power of their attention, their mind, their will. Like her sullen milk-drinking, this strange, half-careless manner they adopt is something that readers can probably relate to. And like Pullman, as teachers, we hope it only covers a passionate curiosity stirring beneath. The way to force that into hiding is by setting up a school like Bolvanger, and the way to sustain it seems to be through stories. The narrator cues us to hear the innuendo there, not to giggle at it, though. We might think back to Lyra hiding in the wardrobe, too. Most of the girl's story is in the form of reported speech, the bare bones of dialogue, which come so naturally as to almost seem transparent, though there are actually layers of art at work here, and they captivate the audience. The information that she provides elicits questions. Like Tony, the other children can't fully trust what the nurse with the soft voice had to say. They aren't privy to Lyra's knowledge about what the cut means, and she chooses not to burden them with the truth. Even if she had wanted to, she would not have had the chance. As we're told, the voices, suddenly all the voices stopped as if they themselves had been cut, and all eyes turned to the door. Sister Clara stood there, bland and mild and matter-of-fact, and beside her was a man in a white coat whom Lyra hadn't seen before. Bridget McGinn, he said. The blonde girl stood up trembling. Her squilled demon clutched her breast. Yes, sir, she said, her voice hardly audible. Finish your drink and come with Sister Clara, he said. The rest of you run along and go to your classes. Obediently, the children stacked their mugs on the stainless steel trolley before leaving in silence. No one looked at Bridget McGinn except Lyra, and she saw the blonde girl's face vivid with fear. So, reinforcing that image of cutting 
and aligning it with the severing of a demon, um, as well as with the inhibition of telling stories and of asking questions, but also aligning it with whatever it was that Bridget and Tony were doing in the linen room. So they're suddenly taken out of the role of audience storyteller and made spectators. Um, entranced as they were, now they hasten to get away. Lyra's the only one who looks at her. And Lyra's too late to do anything for Bridget, whose name we only learn as she's taken away, just as she was too late for Tony. Other than to show that hint of compassion and to take what information they're able to give so as she, to be able to help others. There's a brief interlude then of, of playing games in the gymnasium. Um, games and stories have been paralleled before uh, when Lyra shuffled her story like a pack of cards ready for dealing or when Lee remarks on Asriel's tall tale about Grumman being a good trick to play. They're parallel in terms of how engaged kids are by them. Playing games nevertheless differs from telling stories in that they do not convey the same kind of information or elicit the same kinds of questions. These ball games do entail information of a kind about rules and procedures, procedures and rules which Lyra doesn't really know at first, but also about character, as she proves herself a fast learner, athletic, a natural leader, and most importantly, perhaps, games provide information about delight, embodied information, the fun, which seems to be the primary requisite for stories as well. The unsettling thing, though, is that this very fun can be used to cut against rather than to lead into discussions or considerations of more serious matters. The games or shallow stories can become mere distraction, entertainment which, like dumb obedience, prevents an encounter with Bridget McGinn's vivid face, or the truth about why they're so interested in demons. Schools do not often err on the side of being too fun, though, in my experience, uh, they tend to fall on the side of boredom, but maybe that's only from my own sullenness at the time that made me think so. Then comes another important encounter, brings us back to the matter at hand. We see Billy Costa's joy at Liar's News, which he has to cover by turning his shout into a cough. Billy and Roger, in turn, each have some interesting news to share with Lyra. Overheard from a nurse is an explanation for how Tony must have come to be lost so far from Bullvanger, that the children who undergo the operation are taken further south to other locations. While this is helpful from a narrative standpoint, it's news that's overshadowed by Roger's discovery. See that picture? He meant the big photogram of the tropical beach. If you look up in the top right corner, you see that ceiling panel? The ceiling consisted of large rectangular panels set in a framework of metal strips, and the corner of the panel above the picture had lifted slightly. I saw that, Roger said, and I thought the others might be like it, so I lifted them, and they're all loose. They just lift up. Me and this boy tried it one night in our dormitory before they took him away. There's a space up there, and you can crawl inside. How far can you crawl in the ceiling? I don't know. We went just we just went in a little way. We reckon when it was time we could hide up there, but they'd probably find us. Lara saw it not as a hiding place but as a highway. It was the 
best thing she'd learned, or she'd heard since she'd arrived. Uh, so, that space up there seems pregnant with metaphorical significance. Again, these sorts of ceiling panels are familiar to anyone who spent time in a school or some other institution where the humdrum surroundings cry out for imaginative escape, removing of the loose panels, as it were, of the everyday and absconding, crawling into the imaginative space beyond. Depending on who you are, it's either a hiding place or a highway. As Roger recognizes, that hiding place would only be temporary at best. His friend didn't even get to use it. And as we'll see for Lyra, the highway takes her into the greatest danger that she'll ever face. If it isn't too far of a stretch, we might even see a reminder of Azriel's bridge in this image, or of the wary fiend on the brink of the abyss from uh, Milton's uh, uh, epigraph. Now, in the fire drill, we get the eruption of the extraordinary into the midst of the everyday, or rather, it's an attempt to prevent an emergency like a fire, though it may eventually come to pass, from doing so in a catastrophic, too extraordinary way. As we see, though, the Bolvanger people don't have much idea how to actually accomplish this. The announcement stresses the importance of following instructions to do what the nearest grown-up says. But as we'll see, this assumes that the grown-ups know what to do which, while it would be reassuring if it were so, is far from the case. If there's a real fire, the speech winds up, Lyra immediately picks up on it as a piece of information up there with Rogers. Well, thought Lyra, there's an idea. Rounding out our stay in Bolvanger, we accompany Lyra and Pan as they're tested for dust. Their fright at being taken aside mellows into curiosity, and even becomes a kind of game, a case of the test subject experimenting on the experimenter. Her intuitions about them are on target, but she still doesn't quite put it together. Um. It was hard to tell the difference between these people. All the men looked similar in their white coats and with their clipboards and pencils, and the women resembled one another too, the uniforms and their strange, bland, calm manner making them all look like sisters. Then a bit later, as the two of them conferred, Lyra watched their demons. This nurse's was a pretty bird, just as neat and incurious as Sister Clara's dog, and the doctor's was a large, heavy moth. Neither moved. They were awake, for the bird's eyes were bright, and the moth's feelers waved languidly, but they weren't animated, as she would have expected them to be. Perhaps they weren't really anxious or curious at all. Um, in contrast to Lyra's impressionistic data, which gets close to the truth without quite seeing it, the scientists' apparatus with their clicks and flashes, their anberic currents and streams of fresh air, reduce Lyra in all her complexity to a column of data. As she puts her hand in a tube, possibly reminiscent of the Gomjabar of Frank Herbert's Dune, though pain-free, 
Pan prowls with lightning-eyed suspicion, and Lyris brings her questions. Um, what are you measuring? Is it dust? And uh, she's asking that one, and then she lowers the scientist's guard by pretending that she meant ordinary dust. He says, it's a special dust you can't see, um, but he doesn't elaborate. Then, still more shockingly, since it can't mean anything but what it says, she asks, why do you cut people's demons away? <laughs> he denies it, of course, but his agitation gives him away. And he concedes what seems to be at least part of the real reason. He says it's time for them to move on. They're growing up. And this connects back with what Bridget had said about why they took Tony, that they thought he was older than he was because his demon didn't change. As the scientist tries to get Lyra to give up her sources, and she stonewalls him with dull vagueness, it's time for that fire drill. Sister Betty points out that they'll need their cold weather gear, and vexed as he is at having his measuring interrupted, the scientist concedes that these are just the sort of things that drill is supposed to show up. Making the most of their impatience, Lyra, and in curiosity, Lyra convinces them to let her get her proper furs and dons them with secret glee. Outside, far more than the 40 or so kids of the girls guessed before, and maybe that was her guess for the number of girls, there are around a hundred people milling about, some bewildered. One says, what chaos we'd be in if it were a real fire, and that's ironically prescient, and no one is taking notice of the whistleblower. As she realizes it'll take ages for them to account for everyone, Lyra seizes the opportunity to reconnoiter. No one will notice if we take a look around, said Lyra. It'll take them ages to count everyone, and we could say we just followed someone else and got lost. They waited till most of the grown-ups were looking the other way, and then Lyra scooped up some snow and rammed it into a loose, powdery snowball and hurled it at random into the crowd. In a moment, all the children were doing it, and the air was full of flying snow. Screams of laughter covered completely the shouts of the adults trying to regain control and then the three children were around the corner and out of sight. The snow was so thick that they couldn't move quickly, but it didn't seem to matter. No one was following. Lyra and the others scrambled over the curved roof of one of the tunnels and found themselves in a strange moonscape of regular hummocks and hollows, all swathed in white under the black sky and lit by reflections from the lights around the arena. What are we looking for, said Billy. Dunno, just looking, said Lyra and led the way to a squat square building a little apart from the rest, with a low-powered ambaric light at the corner. So, uh, those snowballs and screams of laughter, like the lifted ceiling panel, are chinks in the facade of Bolvangarian efficiency. Over those curved roofs so very different from Jordan College roofs, though the underlying energy that motivates them may not be so different. The kids explore here in a more desperate fashion, but still with that element of free wandering. They're pressed for time as they never were before, and they're looking for something without knowing quite what it is. That building apart has a sign that reads, Entry Strictly Forbidden, in red letters. The forbiddenness is nothing new, 
though it's unusual in its explicitness, and almost begs for Lyre to find a way in, it's also like the scholars in the retiring room, the Egyptians in their parlor, who kept people out much more politely. But the detail about the red letters, too, might make us think of the Gospels. As for Pullman, these are important, if problematic, gloss on the Genesis story of trespass and prohibition. On the point of trying the door, uh, Lara hears from Roger, look, a bird, or, his or was an exclamation of doubt, because the creature sweeping down from the black sky was no bird at all. It was someone Lyra had seen before, the witch's demon. That unspoken, for him unspeakable possibility of a demon without a person uh, arrives again into the story from the sky. We might wonder how long it is that he's been following Lyra, and whether he was unable to confront the Samoyeds directly, or chose not to for some more complex reasons. But anyhow, he brings welcome news that John Fa was wounded, but not severely, that the Egyptians are just a day's journey away. Having sent the boys away as much to spare them the uncanniness of this demon without a person as to practically keep a lookout, uh, Lyra reveals what it is that they do at Bullfanger. And the demon does not remark on this immediately but turns his attention to the door. They cut, she lowered her voice, they cut people's demons away, children's, and I think maybe they do it here. At least there's something here. And I was going to look, but it's locked. I can open it, said the goose, and beat his wings once or twice, throwing snow up against the door. And as he did, Lyra heard something turn in the lock. Go in carefully, said the demon. Lyra pulled open the door against the snow and slipped inside. The goose demon came with her. Pantalaimon was agitated and fearful, but he didn't want the witch's demon to see his fear, so he had flown to Lyra's breast and taken sanctuary inside her furs. As soon as her eyes adjusted to the light, Lyra saw why. In a series of glass cases on shelves around the walls were all the demons of the severed children, ghost-like forms of cats or birds or rats or other creatures, each bewildered and frightened and as pale as smoke. So, some interesting details there. We've been told he prefers the open, uh, back on the Egyptian ship, but Kaiser goes into the room with Lyra anyway. And Pan, in significant phrase, I think, takes sanctuary in her furs. The scene is the counterpart, the finding Tony Macarios in the fish house, only these demons don't even have a fish to cling to. The goose, enraged as he is at beholding the source of that fear and evil he could see all along emanating from Bolvanger, he insists that Lyra should restrain herself from smashing the glass so that her disguise will hold. As he'd done with the door, he enlists her help this time to blow snow against each cage and with the clicking sound in his throat, the cages open like sympathetic magic. Much as Lyra embraced Tony, here Pan comforts the pathetic forms which are trying to speak and trying to pluck at her, but longing as they are to press themselves against a heartbeat, 
they are held back by the great taboo. Kaisa gathers them, mother goose-like. Behind them, the goose was beating his wings powerfully, throwing snow over the tracks they'd made. And near him, the lost demons were clustering or drifting away, crying little bleak cries of loss and longing. When the footprints were covered, the goose turned to herd the pale demons together. He spoke, and one by one they changed, though you could see the effort it cost them, until they were all birds. And like fledglings, they followed the witch's demons fluttering and falling and running through the snow after him, and finally with great difficulty taking off. They rose in a ragged line, pale and spectral against the deep black sky, and slowly gained height, feeble and erratic though some of them were, and though others lost their will and fluttered downward. But the great gray goose wheeled round and nudged them back, herding them gently on until they were lost against the profound dark. Another one of my favorite passages. Though he's helping them to find their people, and though that's better than leaving them to languish in the cages, Kaiser says that there's no known way of reversing what's been done to them. They'll never be one again. They're sundered forever. This is the most wicked thing that he's ever seen. And though the narrator says that only a few minutes have gone by, Lyra's rushed questions there before the goose departs begin to stretch our credulity. She asks, can witches really fly? Was she dreaming? Can they pull a balloon? And the goose again, as he has before, says there's not time to explain which politics. Mm, but of course there is for us now. Um, when he says that perhaps this is a part of all that's helping, happening elsewhere, uh, we still don't know and, and never really find out in detail what that all it might be. Side stories involving the witches are hinted at uh, in this book and sequels and in Lyra's Oxford, but only briefly. But at least one way of understanding this is to see it as the working out of good coming from evil, something good coming from that most wicked thing, which is finally revealed, namely that the witches of Serafina Pecola's clan are being convinced to act. It's like how Lyra is being captured has allowed her to infiltrate Bolvanger, find Roger, set the demons free, and now she has plans for a way to orchestrate the escape of all of the children. A few other interesting details there. There's that second person, you, um, that's tossed off in the middle of that description. You could see the effort it cost them. Um, there's also once again, Roger reminding us of the crypt at Jordan. It's like the crypt in Jordan. They're demons. And Lyra hushes him, says, don't tell Billy, don't tell anyone yet. In what, in what way is it like the crypt at Jordan, I wonder? And I wonder why she doesn't want anyone to know this yet. Well, perhaps as Lyra was visited by the night ghasts, of the scholars with their severed heads, maybe Roger was visited by ghosts of their mixed-up demons. Or maybe he means that the arrangement of the cages uh, in that squat square room is like the arrangement of the skulls down there in the crypt. Or maybe he just means that these moments are alike in their spookiness. We might also wonder 
about the mechanics of, of them changing form in this case. Does changing cost more effort once one is severed, or once one is close to the age of settling, or both? Does that whole power of changing form, uh, is that in any way analogous to what Kaisa seems to be able to do with the snow? Altering the arrangement of the flakes by controlling the wind just so, with a sound, to fit it into the shape of a key in the locks. So that what we might call magic is really just an extension of these powers of demons in this world. Particularly of, of witches' demons, who seem to be able to separate from their people. And though even we can kick up snow to cover our footprints if we want... When Kaiser does this, I, I imagine it to be similarly impressive as his work on the cages, that he somehow perfectly smooths out the hollows, even at a great distance, blowing the snow over them. And just in time, Lyra lines us up to go back inside, instructing Roger and Billy to pass the word for everyone to be ready to escape, and to know where their clothes are kept, and to keep the plan a deadly secret from the adults. The signal, of course, will be the fire bell. And the narrator here gets in one last dig at the adults of Bolfinger. Um, if anyone in the oblation board had had anything to do with the school, they would have arranged this better. Because they had no regular group to go to, each child had to be ticked off against the complete list. And of course, they weren't in alphabetical order, and none of the adults was used to keeping control. So there was a good deal of confusion despite the fact that no one was running around anymore. There's another double semicolon sentence. The uh, idea that they haven't been involved with the school, well, Lyra's never been in the school either, so she wouldn't put it in quite those terms, but, but she does perceive in her own way. Um, Lyra watched and noticed. They weren't very good at this at all. They were slack in a lot of ways, these people. They grumbled about fire drills. They didn't know where the outdoor clothes should be kept. They couldn't get children to stand in line properly. And their slackness might be to her advantage. There's another one. Wow. There's really something there. Those semicolons. Anyway. Um, to go with the most wicked thing, we now get... Another distraction, and from her point of view, it was the worst possible. The arrival of the Zeppelin. Um, but even in this case, there's, there's that mercy that luckily it comes from the opposite direction to the one that the goose and the demons flow, have flown. Um, its lights blaze downwards, and as it lands, it completes the picture of Bolvanger lights, for this is what the wide area has been designed for. And that pole that Lyra couldn't place earlier is the mooring mast. As the adults ushered the children inside, with everyone staring back and pointing, the ground crew clambered up the ladders in the mast and prepared to attach the mooring cables. Engines were roaring, the snow was swirling up from the ground, and the faces of passengers showed in the cabin windows. Lyra looked, and there was no mistake. Pantaline clutched at her, 
came a wildcat, hissed in hatred, because looking out with curiosity was the beautiful dark-haired head of Mrs. Coulter, with a golden demon in her lap. Time for recess. Indoor recess this week in the gym, and a short impromptu outdoor recess of snowball fights and moonscape exploration. Moonscape is uh, another word I thought I should look up, so I was curious what the narrator's use of it might suggest about astronomy and space travel in Lyra's world. According to Merriam-Webster, it was first used back in 1907, so I guess it's not dependent on an actual moon landing then. Okay. For a recess this week, we have a wealth of mini-games for the imaginary video game adaptation. We have gymnastics, sewing, art. So, Bullvanger is a veritable gold saucer, or Mario Party, a casino sim full of fun. There's also the engrossing story of Bridget McGinn that we can play through, and the counter-experiment Lyra conducts on the scientist. And during the fire drill, you'll get to provoke a snowball fight and practice your roof-running skills for the first time in a while. And with the arrival of Kaiza, you'll temporarily have a witch demon in your party and learn the use of blowing snow for opening locked doors and covering tracks. The critical challenge for the chapter, though, will be to encourage the severed demons to take flight before the zeppelin arrives, to keep them all airborne long enough for them to escape. And I'll have a little bit more to say, I hope, about those other side quest ideas uh, soon. I'm going to try to accelerate my work on the remaining chapters and release, say, two episodes a week from here on out. This is because the trailer for the new BBC series just appeared. And so I'm going to try to get a manuscript into shape here to reach out to publishers who might want to capitalize on the renewed interest in Pullman at this point. All the remaining conversations except one are already recorded, so I can release these pretty promptly. I've also got an invite to contribute a guest post on A Pilgrim in Narnia, um, to C.S. Lewis-centered blog run by Professor Brenton Dickieson. Um, so I'll try to be on my best behavior for that. I've also heard back from Laurie Frost, the author of the encyclopedia uh, uh, Elements of His Dark Materials. And so I'm very excited to get to share some ideas with her and see what we can put together. So more coming soon. Until then, take care.